I think it's absolutely the case that the sooner you have a designer who is pushing on some of the fundamental questions around what problem you're solving, around what is the what is the benefit to these end users? What's the benefit to humanity? That the sooner you have that voice in the room, the better those companies will be. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and today's episode is very special. We're going to talk to an incredible guy who's led a really wonderful career as a maker and a builder and has gone on to become an investor so that he can fuel the next generation of incredible companies. Today, we're talking to Steve Vassallo, a general partner at Foundation Capital, a venture capital firm here in the Bay Area, and the author and creator of The Way to Design, a new book that really documents his vision for how design can impact the world and startups in really new, powerful ways. So let's dive into my conversation with Steve and enjoy the show. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, Rob. Yeah, great to talk to you. So let's start off with your role at Foundation Capital. You've been here for about 10 years. And just tell listeners about the role of a, of a VC focused on design. Yeah, so I came to Foundation in 2007, actually, initially as an entrepreneur in residence. I was on the path to starting a company and uh, was, uh, was determined to go build something. I'd, I'd been an entrepreneur a couple times over and and uh, after about two or three months of, uh, of, of working on my idea, but also bringing in lots of interesting projects, people I knew from my network, um, the folks here were like, hey, why don't, why don't you think about uh, investing? And I initially resisted that. Um, and then uh, a couple more months went by and I realized I was having as much fun as I'd ever had in my career. And so I uh, made my first investment back in, uh, in 2008 and uh, have made, I don't know, 15 or 20 investments since then. And uh, yeah, so I, I tend to focus on kind of everything that we do. I, I, I uh, have worked uh, in consumer, I've worked in financial services, I've worked um, in synthetic biology. Um, so I tend to work on the earliest stage and oftentimes sort of the most fundamental technology innovations here. So um, tend to be looking for those, those interesting opportunities at the seams between disciplines. And over this past year, you focused on putting together this kind of uber thought leadership piece, this book called The Way to Design. How did that come about? And tell me a little bit about the book. I've got the physical copy here with me today. I've read it a couple times digitally, and I love it. It's beautifully designed. There's such great storytelling in it and lessons for entrepreneurs and designers who want to become founders. So how did this come about? Because not every VC is kind of out there writing books about their theses on uh, on design or what they want to invest in like this. Yeah. Well, um, it started actually uh, as a presentation to our, our investors, our limited partners, uh, about almost three years ago now. And I'd pulled together this, um, this thought piece on why uh, design matters more than ever. Um, and it really tied back to my own background. So I started my career as a product designer at IDEO back in the early 90s. And um, as I pointed out in this initial presentation, design was really coming into the fore. It was clear that um, the way we talked about design 15, 20, 25 years ago was very much um, in this sort of notion of design as craft, um, design as sort of this uh, styling exercise, if you will. And um, really over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, design has come to mean much more than that. 
And I, I wanted to sort of highlight that, um, that change and what it would mean then for the startup uh, landscape. And that initial presentation of whatever, 30, 30 slides or so, um, actually was sort of the initial outline for the book. Um, and, and what we wanted to do is go kind of build some more perspective underneath some of the hypotheses and, uh, and interview designers and designer founders who were on the front lines um, and who had some of these really interesting stories to share. And, uh, and so that was really, you know, kind of this personal connection with my own past. Um, frankly, what I felt like I was, uh, you know, a designer founder 25 years ago, kind of looking into uh, what, what it would take to become an entrepreneur, kind of not necessarily knowing what questions to ask, who to talk to, what resources were out there. And then, so that was sort of the personal connection. And the second reason really to write the book was was really more from the perch um, that, that, that I now sit in from the venture industry, which is when I looked at how the venture industry was um, was was supporting those uh, aspiring designer founders. It was mostly with um, pretty high-level uh, observations. It was sort of industry insights. Here's a number of LinkedIn job openings for user interface uh, designers, or um, here's the uh, the stats on number of billion-dollar companies that have been founded by designers. But none of the real kind of practical, tactical um, uh resources to sort of help those designers bridge the gap to become successful founders. And so I wanted to do that um, in a way that would sort of support that next generation of designer founders. So it was really that personal and that professional um, uh, reasons for, for, for writing the book. And you talked about this kind of redefinition of design over the past 10, 15 years. I think a lot of people do think about design in terms of craft. They think about how does the packaging look? How does, what are the colors? What's the, the brand design? How do you define design? Yeah, so I think the, the, um, the reframing that I attempt to make in this book is really uh, around design. I call it sort of, sort of a more, a bigger tent uh, definition of design, more inclusive and expansionist. And I think it's really um, stepping back um, the way design, the design thinking movement had almost 10 years ago. So whereas I think the first instinct for designers is to zoom into details like you described, you know, the colors and the radii and a button or uh, the drop shadows or, or sort of many, many of the sort of styling bits, um, small pieces of the kernel of a font. And, and, and while many designers have, you know, the super, super strengths in and around those details, what I've, what I've found is that um, there are so many designers who are sort of stepping back from these details and beginning to ask, why is it that I'm working on this? What problem am I trying to solve? What opportunity am I trying uh, or could I be addressing and pointing my kind of uh, mutant powers, if you will, on? And I think um, this notion of design as the what, as I call it in the book, as opposed to the craft, uh, is I think, um, you know, it's part of the, the, the newer definition or the sort of broader definition of design. In design thinking speak, some people talk about this as the little d and the big D, um, the big D being the, the, the craft and the little d being sort of the design uh, thinking component of this, so the sort of the approach. And, and I wanted to sort of highlight that I think the definition of what design means has changed over the last 10 years, and it is much more about, um, about the what. And you approach this concept from a background as a designer, as a product maker, as a founder, now as an investor, was creativity and building core to your upbringing? When you were a kid, I mean, reading the the book and hearing stories about you and your brother and playing with Legos and go-kart racing and all that, were you more of 
of the kind of science, math, engineering kind of kid, or were you also drawing, painting on the creative side? Yeah. So I, I think I didn't realize this till later, but I, I mean, I've, I've been a designer since before I knew being a designer was an actual thing. Um, you know, when I look back on, uh, on, on what I loved to do as a kid and, and the kinds of activities, it was all very, um, generative. It was, um, it was building things, taking things apart, trying to reassemble them in different ways, uh, often at the dismay of my parents, um, <laughs> and siblings. And, um, and, and, and that sort of building instinct is something that I carry with me today, even, even as an investor, um, I'm a product first, um, investor. And I think about everything from, from the sort of, um, the experience and, 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 and the, uh, and the user first. And, and that I think really does flow just from that primal instinct to create something, uh, where before there was nothing, um, whether it was Legos for me as a kid or, frankly, the, the box that the Legos came in um, and building something uh, really interesting with that. And then, of course, that morphed into more digital media over time. So in, in my master's degree at Stanford, I began um, a lot more work around embedded systems and robotics uh, and began to apply these same um, generalized processes and principles of building things, physical objects, to uh, to more intellectual constructs like software, and um, and so I sort of think about um, I think about the tool of design and design thinking um, as as something that can be applied to any kind of problem, um, whether it's a physical thing, a digital thing, a soci- sociological challenge, a socio-economic challenge. You can you can apply many of these same rules and processes um, to all those kinds of opportunities and challenges. And you were early days at IDEO, and you mentioned this a, a bit, and, and the folks at IDEO are the kind of makers of this concept of design thinking and how you can apply the principles of design to solve really big challenges. Can you tell listeners about that firm and a little bit of why it's special and what it was like being there? So IDEO is an amazing place. Um, and, uh, you know, I was there from uh, for about five, five and a half years or so in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we had four offices, three offices at that time, and the whole firm was, I don't know, 150 people. Um, and our Monday meetings used to be like sitting in a circle on the concrete floor uh, in the shop, and David uh, Kelly would tell us the sort of interesting stories of, of the things he had done uh, in the last week. And um, just an incredibly creative group. Um, but I think the thing that persists um, still today even, and I have many close friends there, is that it is fundamentally a culture of low inhibitions and and one where um, you are encouraged to take big risks. Um, you know, when your when your client looks the other way or your boss looks the other way, you're you're tinkering with with some new idea um, uh, that that nobody had thought uh, deserved to, to to be prototyped and and turns out to be actually exactly the right solution. And and I think um, that was just for me, um, you know, it was it was it was in the air. It was in it was in the atmosphere there, and and I think you when you when you kind of leave IDEO for me, um, thinking about sort of what are the things that I take take with me, um, both as an entrepreneur and then as an investor. It's really I think um, it's really three things. It's it's starting with the user first. Um, you know, people love to use the sort of empathy buzzword for this. And uh, I think if it's, you know, if, if you mean empathy from a like observing and, 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 the, and the anthropological definition of, of kind of data-driven compassion or sort of da- data-driven um, uh, or evidence-based compassion, if you will, that's, that's how I think IDEO approaches um, uh, the world, sort of starting with users. So that's thing one. Thing two 
is this notion of rushing to prototype, of, of prototyping everything and, and iterating um, over and over and over again. Was that scary for you at IDEO or was that just your nature? Like, it was no, totally my nature. Just get into yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I love going into the shop. To me, when I walk in the shop, I feel like I'm at home um, because uh, anything is possible. And, uh, and again, it comes back to that question of sort of if anything's possible, what, what do you want to do? Like what, what problem do you want to address? Um, because you can build anything uh, today. And so, but when I go in the shop, oh boy, it's just, it's like, yeah, it's, it's Christmas. But there's like a fear of failure that I think has to be overcome. Was there something kind of early in your upbringing or in college or in graduate school or being at IDEO that kind of broke down some of those barriers to failure? No, I think, I think your point around um, how do you manage failure uh, or risk-taking, how do you... Um, uh, how do you sort of balance that um, in 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 the creative world is such a tricky thing because um, I mean I think most of us uh, you know you all hear this sort of like fail fast uh, to succeed sooner or whatever sort of uh, trope people I think are are attaching to that today I think failure um, uh, you know at the kind of a company level is is just a hard thing to manage it sucks people you know people don't want to fail when you're I think in safe environments, particularly younger in life, uh, in educational environments where you can um, take some risks and where the consequences of uh, of building something that doesn't work um, are not you know they're not career limiting um, that's where I think you begin to, to build some of that resilience. Um, I think that for me was you know was very much around the building when you built something that didn't work uh, a model or uh, you know, uh, a, a Lego concept, you basically just kept rebuilding it. Right. And so the failure sort of turned into, I think, muscles a- around iteration. Um, but in the, in the sort of, uh, you know, in, in, in just to maybe finish the loop on the, on the idea thing, I think the last thing was, you know, if it's first thing was, you know, start with the user in mind, build that kind of empathy. The second thing was really around this rapid prototyping and iterating, um, on these ideas. The third thing was storytelling and how do you actually, um, convey these ideas, and so many engineers and designers, you know, struggle with this um, with this uh, ability to to kind of get their ideas out of their head and, and into the heads of of their users and their colleagues and their uh, and their co-founders. So um, it was those three things. But yeah, uh, taking risks and figuring out how to be resilient through the failure, um, I think, is is pretty fundamental here. And was starting a company always in your DNA? Was it a no brainer? Like, how did Ning come about? Yeah, so Ning, um, I joined actually as the first employee. Um, so Mark and Gina had just started. Uh, so Mark Andresen and, and Gina Bianchini. So Mark had uh, was just kind of winding down on his experience at Opsware LabCloud. And Gina was uh, just spooling up on, on this concept of sort of the social networking infrastructure company. And um, I had met them, actually initially met Mark uh, as a target for uh, a possible angel investor for my own idea I'd been working on. And uh, Mark was, uh, and Gina were, were kind of looking for a head of product and engineering uh, at the time. And so instead of me getting his, his angel check, he got me um, to, uh, to work on this concept. And, 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 so I, and it was a social network for any kind of social network that you want to build. That's right. That's yeah, right. Around a passion and interest. Yeah. And that could be, I mean, that could be anything uh, from, you know, a hobby that you had to a professional um, uh, need to not, we had lots of nonprofits on the platform. Uh, who were using, you know, using the, the system to connect um, with their user bases and communities. And so, you know, I think we were, we were probably 10 years too early, but the idea I think has incredible merit and, and the infrastructure we built underlying it, I think lives now in, in so many companies today. 
And you mentioned getting an MBA at Stanford. This is uh, after IDEO, before Ning. Yep. When did getting an MBA become a must for you? And you know, the second part to the question is for designers who are out there that want to become founders, do you think that there's a, there's a point where on-the-job education can kind of supplant the need for a degree? Or what was your decision-making like there? It's a great, I think it's a great question. And, and I do think the times have changed. So, um, so I, when I was at IDEO kind of, you know, building products and having lots of fun, working with some amazing people, I frankly looked at an MBA with disdain. Um, <laughs> I was like, you know, that's this bullshit degree for people to go hang out, um, and network. Um, you know, I was very much an engineers, uh, engineer and, and, a, and kind of designer first, uh, individuals. And, and, and I think, um, it wasn't until, frankly, my wife um, went back to school. She and I worked together at IDEA. We'd actually met in our robotics lab at Stanford. Um, but when she went back uh, to Stanford to get her MBA, and I literally saw it transform the way she thought. Um, and and she would she would ask questions that I you know I, I just didn't even think to ask. And so when I combined you know the amazing experience that I'd had um, at, uh, at at IDEO and, and felt you know like so many of those um, incredible tools had sort of imprinted me on me like a baby duck. Like I knew, I knew how to build products. And then I combined that um, with some of my experience at Immersion, which was a company where I, um, I ran our mechanical engineering group, a public company back in, uh, it's the company I left after IDEO, and, and sort of the technical challenges that we were able to surmount. Um, I combined those two things and said, I know how to deal with user facing issues and I know how to solve really hard technical problems, but I don't know anything about business. And when I came to the realization that there was this huge body of knowledge that I knew nothing about, I decided that I wanted to just go get the, you know, the fastest path to that was, was going to go, go get an MBA. And so I actually went back to Stanford uh, much later than most of my classmates. I treated it more like a sabbatical. I, I wasn't there to check any boxes for anybody else. It was much more around absorbing some new, um, new concepts and meeting some really interesting new people and learning about things that I'd heard about, but didn't know, know a lick about. And so, um, I really enjoyed that experience. It was absolutely fantastic for me. So, so I think you know, to your point, you can learn a lot of the things that I learned in business school from um, from other people. You know, getting you know, finding a great mentor um, in you know who's coming out of the sales discipline or finding a great um, uh, you know uh, like minded um, individual coming from um, from marketing or or from a growth team who's coming at the world from a not from a, a technology or design perspective, but from a business perspective. And so I think you can, you can absorb a lot of these things. Um, I just found that the, the Stanford MBA experience was, um, was a great way to do it on my, on my own terms. And it's interesting that you needed that person very close to you and your life to have the, the window into what insights they had gotten from an MBA and the value of it versus just kind of having this notion in your mind of what it was for and right. kind of, I guess, the, the preconceived ideas about it. That's right. I, I think had, had Trey not, uh, had I not seen sort of her experience firsthand um, sort of change the way she thought, I don't think I would have ever gone back to business school. Hey, everyone. I want to talk to you about a little something you can do to help Making Ways podcast, and it doesn't cost you a nickel or a dime or a penny or $100. It's actually free and will just take you a couple minutes. And what I'm asking you to do is leave a review on iTunes. When you leave a review on iTunes, it's a really incredible way to turn more people onto the show. So if you head over there and you like the show, leave a five-star review. 
leave a little note about what you like about the show or one of your favorite episodes. It'll take a few minutes, and it's really an incredible way you can support the show. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the conversation. Talk me through a little bit of your process as a maker. So maybe pick a project from IDEO. I know uh, the Cisco phone you designed, uh, very acclaimed uh, piece of technology, or another project that you love. Walk me through kind of your process as a, as a maker and an engineer uh, for listeners. Yeah, so um, when I think back on the Cisco project, this is now going back to um, 1998, 1999, uh, and I worked uh, with some amazing, amazing designers and engineers at IDEO on this project. The team was probably, I don't know, 15 people when, um, when we were kind of in the thick of things. Um, and I, I think about uh, what were some of the, the really sort of nodal moments uh, in that project. This is, you know, um, at a time when if you were to look at, you know, desk phones in 1998, um, the way people thought about, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, what was a high-end desk phone was the number of buttons you had on it. So like, if it looked more like the cockpit of a 747, um, then you were like the most important person in the company. Um, you know, lots of, uh, lots of screens, uh, for add-on lines and people you could call with one touch. Um, but you know, not, uh, not a display-based interface. And so, um, you know, when, when I think back on some of those kind of fundamental decisions we made, um, we, we not only from the infrastructure perspective, but from the user experience perspective, tried to figure out how to bring um, this notion of forward flexibility, this notion of interacting with users in a more dynamic, um, user-centered way, uh, in a more contextual way um, to the fore. And, and so this was the first display-based phone on the planet. Um, and of course, we, we now take that for granted. All of our phones have have uh, nice displays on them. But um, at that time, it was most, these are mostly analog devices. Um, but Cisco, to their credit, knew that this world was changing. Um, they came to us. This was the first product that they'd made or that they were going to launch that didn't live in a data center or in a closet. Um, so this is a, you know, a phone is a personal product. It touches your face, I don't know, 50, 100 times a day. And, um, and so the way it feels, the way you interact with it is going to really matter. So we spent a lot of time um, understanding users, uh, I, I must have visited 20 call centers, uh, people who literally live on the phone all day. Um, and we have some great photos from those visits. And then I think figuring out how to do, how to sort of satisfy the users while, while also satisfying Cisco's needs to have like, you know, this was going to be all encompassing, like this photo, this phone was going to do everything. And so again, like, as I mentioned before, when you have people who are bearing down on you with like, here are these laundry lists of, 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 you know, of market requirement documents. Can be a um, path to mediocrity. Oh, right? you, I mean, you, yeah, exactly. You end up oftentimes with just these, you know, complete uh, pile of oatmeal products that nobody wants. And so figuring out how to sort of sift through that um, uh, and and come up with something that that was um, I think the last great desk phone that you know that is in every slow pan across every uh, you know every TV series and, and big movie of the last fifteen years. So not only is it from a design perspective iconic, I think it actually also um, from a user perspective is uh, is something that I'm really proud of. And so after Ning, when you joined Foundation as an entrepreneur in residence. Yep. They eventually convinced you to get involved in investing, and you've been here for about ten years. I'd love to hear a little bit about you're talking to you're talking to companies all the time. You're talking to startups. Uh, I don't know how many times a day. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see, kind of as a whole, with early stage companies that you think would be, you know, that would be helpful? I think I, I you know, and and every company is different, um, and uh, and and there are probably very few kind of 
you know, generalizable mistakes that I, that I see. But I think one or two, certainly, and, the, and these are things that actually came up um, in, in the Way to Design project, book project, um, is what I call sort of the bolt-on syndrome. And this is where um, people wait, entrepreneurs oftentimes wait too long to, uh, to dig into the really hard question that they're, that they're afraid of. Um, and, and oftentimes for designers, um, that's this question of, of maybe business model or distribution. How am I going to get this thing that I love, uh, that, that I sort of have, you know, such deep passion for, how am I going to get this thing out into the wild? The, the scary part. Yeah, the scary part. And so they tend to sort of, you know, bury their head in the sand, uh, and, and kind of hope that, that those things are going to work their way out. And there are lots of, you know, folks who in many cases who have this sort of conventional wisdom of, you know, just, you know, whatever monetization follows use. So don't worry about that. But I do think, um, that the, the most successful, um, uh, entrepreneurs are those who are, are willing to kind of rush to the fight, if you will, who are willing to, um, who, who are willing to kind of address, at least contemplate how, um, how that, that business model might evolve. And by the way, I think the failure mode for most business-focused entrepreneurs is the same bolt-on issue, but from the other direction, which is, you know, I, I, I used to joke that like at IDEO, we would, you know, we'd be, we would be called in as these 11th hour stylists when in fact design was this fundamental question that this should have been asked at the very beginning of the project. And so, you know, many folks tease designers for bolting on business models in the 11th hour. I think most business focused entrepreneurs bolt on design in the 11th hour. So we're just kind of making the same mistakes in the opposite directions. And one of your investments is Designer Fund, who is solely focused on investing in designer-founded right. startups. So is that part of kind of what's core to you, that design should not only have a seat of at the table early on, but they should be at the, you know, at the beginning. At the yeah. beginning, I, I think it's absolutely the case that the sooner you have a designer who is pushing on some of the fundamental questions around what problem you're solving, around what is the what is the benefit to these end users, what's the benefit to humanity, that the sooner you have that voice in the room, the better those companies will be. And um, you know, you, you don't have to just be working on things that you know sound more perhaps philanthropic, but um, I think advocating for users the same way you might advocate for uh, for you know your your go to market or your sales strategy, advocating for users over and over and over again, and just making that uh, fundamental of the dialogue. I think as soon as you can is the is is the best. And I'm curious for someone like you who is obviously so passionate about making and building. Now you're you know an, an arm's uh, length away, <laughs> and you're helping these companies. Some of your investments, uh, Sunrun, Mode, Pocket, Bolt Threads which is so cool, right? It's building fabric from spider silk, exactly. uh, engineered spider silk, amazing. Do you ever miss being hands-on? And do you kind of view your role now as maybe an order of magnitude higher because you're able to you know, share greater insights and make bigger impacts across different companies and products? For me, um, I still love making things. Um, I love designing products. Um, I, I still have a sketchbook that I, you know, I, I live in when I'm when I'm working with on projects with uh, with my children and and uh, even just things at home, whether it's designing furniture or uh, or a base for a table. Um, and um, and I also still have a side hustle uh, business. So I uh, about I guess it's almost ten years ago. I uh, along with a couple of other IDEO friends. Um, designed a product that we still sell on Yahoo stores off of our you know, off our website as well as through Amazon and 
Um, and it's a, you know, it's kind of the, the side project that, that won't die. And, um, and, and what is it? So it's a footrest. Uh, it's called the Webble, like, uh, uh, like Pebble, but with a W. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, uh, it's, it was, uh, you know, sort of a simple, you know, kind of two and a half month project. It's, it's a footrest that's not about resting fundamentally. It's about sort of being able to move. Uh, and the insight here is that most people sit at their desks, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And stasis is not a good thing for our bodies. We're learning more and more about that. Uh, and so the idea that you can under your desk have almost like a skateboard of sorts that floats um, and feels like, uh, you know, feels like a cushion under your feet is, is pretty darn cool. And so we've sold now many thousands of these, uh, uh, these devices and uh, it's, it's a fun little side business. So I get to do things like that. I certainly um, work on some cool projects with, uh, with my kids, build lots of Lego robots these days <laughs> um, and, uh, and try to scratch that itch. But, but I think the role of investor um, as opposed to, to builder um, is distinct. And I think because I was a product designer, because I was uh, you know, an executive in startups, uh, both public and private, I think about my ability sort of more as, or my, or my, my obligation today is more uh, of almost a river guide. Like I, I kind of know where the scary parts of the experience are. And, uh, and I, I, I hope to sort of just help those entrepreneurs through some of those, those scary moments. And you mentioned your children and you're also mentoring these companies. Tell me a little bit, I know you've done some teaching, you've taught entrepreneurship to high school students, I believe. Tell me a little bit about that experience and just kind of the role of a mentor and how important that is for you. Yeah, so I think um, I think we're all natural born entrepreneurs, fundamentally. I think uh, just like, um, you know, if you were to go into my my daughter's second grade class and and ask, you know, who who likes to draw in this class? You know, all the hands would go up. Um, and if you went into my son's seventh grade class and you asked, you know, who's, who likes to draw, maybe a third of the hands would go up. And if you went into my high schoolers class, you know, maybe, maybe one in 10 would go up. And I think, um, in general, we, uh, we let a lot of these, um, creative outlets, we let, we, we kind of design them out. Um, we were, our critical voices are oftentimes crowding out, um, those more generative, uh, modalities. And so... I think in, 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 when it comes to entrepreneurship, um, you know, our, uh, our instincts are to build things, um, are to create things for others, uh, to create new experiences that are compelling. And so, um, you know, I started my first business when I was uh, in middle school. It was my silly uh, Steve Snowblowing uh, business. I still carry the business card in my, in my wallet uh, as a reminder of, uh, you know, of what it was like to go knock on doors uncomfortably and try to get people as customers and then knock on their doors again when you had a bill for them. Um, but, but I do think... Um, uh, I do think we start uh, fundamentally as as builders, and and so over the last ten years, I've been working um, with uh, kids both in middle schools as well as in, in high schools and even younger um, to uh, to to try to get some of these um, some of these basic principles of entrepreneurship into the hands of kids um, early enough so that they feel empowered, um, so that they feel like when you know when when they're cooking away on. Uh, on, on an idea, it, it, it's not some problem that was handed to them from a textbook, but it's perhaps something that um, sprang from their own imaginations. And um, so, yeah, so I kicked off this class at our at our kids' um, school. This is now uh, five, six years ago. It was an introduction to entrepreneurship class. We had kids doing case studies, um, literally being taught. In, in one case, we, we did the uh, the Aardvark case, which was a HBS case, 
um, that uh, my dear friend Allison Wagenfeld actually uh, wrote the case and then delivered the case to these kids. It was absolutely amazing. <laughs> and then they presented, uh, this was uh, over the course of a semester, they presented, um, there was about seven teams, uh, four of them kind of for-profit ideas, three of them were uh, not-for-profit ideas, and they presented all their ideas and business plans at uh, actually at Stanford GSB to a to a panel of, uh, uh, of August uh, investors and and uh, industry experts. And these kids were just on top of the world. And I love to see that. That just makes me really happy. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve, for joining the show. Really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Okay, that was my conversation with Steve Vassallo, general partner at Foundation Capital and creator of the Way to Design book. Steve, thanks so much for joining the show. I learned so much and I hope you guys out there learned a ton, not only through Steve's career path and what he's doing now as an investor, but really about his thoughts around design. And if you're a designer out there and you're thinking about starting a company, maybe reading this book or listening to this episode will really take you to that next step that you need to get going. I recommend you guys all check out the book, The Way to Design. You can get it online at thewaytodesign.com. You can even order it on Amazon as a beautiful print book. So check it out. Let me know what you think. You can also learn more about Foundation Capital at foundationcapital.com. And you should shout out to Steve on Twitter at Vassalo, V-A-S-S-A-L-L-O. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've also got music by Jim Heffernan in the show. You guys should definitely check out Jim Heffernan's amazing work as a musician and a producer at ttoproductions.com. And be sure to check out makingways.co. That's the website for the podcast where you can see original illustrations I do of every guest. You can read articles that really go beyond the episode, and you can check out show notes so you can really start investigating more of the topics we discuss on the shows. And be sure to follow the podcast on social media. We're at making underscore ways on Twitter and making dot ways on Instagram. We're on Facebook and Medium. And be sure to sign up for the newsletter at makingways.co where I share news and updates and events and even more behind the scenes info. If you're loving what you're hearing on the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a review maybe recruit your mom or your grandma or your cousin or your significant other to do one too. It's a really great way for people to discover the show. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.